Good morning, gents. Those shopping days are begin to run a little thin now. Get out there and get her the right present, the right price, and the right place. And keep the receipt. That's what I learned. Keep the receipt. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 on page 1834 of your Amen study Bible, the ESV study Bible. And here we're going to pick up the last verses, can you believe it, of the Sermon on the Mount. We're studying the sermons of Jesus in Matthew, five sermons, and we've spent all of this semester on one sermon. And indeed, it is a magnificent sermon. We've seen that uh, Jesus teaches us, first of all, what a real disciple looks like, what a blessed person looks like. Then he taught us that we're the ones who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he said, you're the ones who really will be seeking righteousness. You're the ones who will be the righteous ones, not the Pharisees and the scribes who know all the laws and all the rabbinical interpretations of them. No, you're the ones who understand real righteousness. We saw that in chapter 5. And then you're the ones who will practice real piety. You'll be exercising your piety and your godliness not to please or impress men, but to please the Lord alone in private. And then he shows us how we're the ones who will have our our ambitions reined in, and we'll have not the ambitions to gain mammon and the things of this world, but to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then we got to chapter 7, we saw that our relationships are going to be very different because we're going to live under the eyes of God as our judge. And uh, we saw that on these last two studies that we've had. And now, as we turn to verse 13, we really, as we come to the close of the sermon, Jesus is really, you know, like, like you know, you'd expect any effective preacher to do, to kind of bring, bring it home and say, okay, we've laid these things out. Now we've got a choice to make. And that's really what's before us today. We've been studying all these distinctives of what it means to know Christ and follow Christ. Now uh, you've you got to make a decision. There's a choice in front of you. And, of course, you know, uh, having made that choice, uh, so many of you to follow Christ uh, you have choices every day. Uh, life is made up of a whole series of choices, large and small, and they're all important. Well, let's look at what Jesus says then as he closes his sermon, beginning with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree Bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. 
And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for his teaching, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Okay, first of all, in verses 13 and 14, let's notice that true wisdom enters the narrow gate. There are two gates. There are two roads. There are two uh, groups of companions, and there are two destinations. You get all of that here in this. True wisdom enters the narrow gate. If you're going to be a wise person, you're going to go through the narrow gate. You can look back with me, if you will, in Psalm chapter 1. And here you get the same sort of distinction. This is on page 942. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Those are the first three verses. Now look at verses 4, 5, and 6. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You're getting the same sort of uh, wisdom here from the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is wise is going to enter the narrow gate. Now, first of all, notice in verse 13a, many will enter the wide gate. Many will enter the wide gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So many will go through the wide gate. And notice, here's a reason. The wide gate, it is easy. The road is broad. And as Stott says, there are no curbs, no stop signs. It's permissive. It's tolerant. You can follow your heart's desire. And uh, if, you, if you read Stott, you came across this good quote that he gives from C.S. Lewis in describing his, uh, Lewis's own <clears throat> spiritual uh, autobiography. He says, <clears throat> I was, uh, he says, um, uh, Lewis described uh, how as a schoolboy of 13 he began to broaden his mind. I was soon alt- uh, altering, I believe, to one feels that, and oh the relief of it. From the ter- tyrannous noon of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. And that's the reason people take the broad gate. 
the wide gate. It is easy. I had a, we had an example of this just yesterday in, the, in yesterday's paper. Uh, the right-hand side uh, uh, headline says, DNA linked to gay traits. I thought, oh, this would be interesting. So I read the article, and it says, children may inherit homosexuality from their parents, according to a study published Tuesday by scientists at the University of Tennessee. The research uses mathematical modeling to show sexual orientation may not be linked to genetic exactly, but to the chemicals attached to DNA that turn genetic markers on and off. The genes for homosexuality have not been identified yet despite a very significant effort, said Sergei Gavrilay, a professor in UT's National Institute for Mathematical and Biological Synthesis. Now, if you read that really carefully, they haven't found the gene. It's not in the DNA. And chemically, they haven't proven anything. It's mathematically. So they've run their mathematical model. And then you get to their explanation. Here's what Dr. whatever his name is says. When you put it together in one very coherent framework, the theory is very logical and is supported by mathematical modeling. It is, get this, an explanation that seems to be working much better than any existing explanations. <laughs> Headlines. DNA linked to gay traits. It's called the broad, that's, broad, that's called the wide gate. Uh, right after that was reported on the television news, uh, night before last, then they interview a person who's leading the gay movement, one of the gay movements in Memphis. And here's what he says. He says, yes, this is a groundbreaking study, opening new doors of understanding. And he said, it's very much like those who were left-handed in the medieval period who were told that that was demonic. And then we came, of course, later to understand it's just a natural thing. You just get it genetically. And then he said this very important statement, which is the point of all of this. He said, and therefore it would be wrong to make moral judgments about something that's in the DNA. And that's where it's all headed, of course. Now, uh, I have no beef at all with uh, studies like this. It may very well be proven that the, one of the strongest contributors to uh, sexual orientation is in our DNA. I was wondering where mine came from, and now I know. It's, uh, got it from my daddy. Uh, he, he was lustful just like me. And so I'm so glad to know that my lust as a heterosexual came from DNA because now who could make a moral judgment if I sleep with whomever I want to? After all, I've got this lustful DNA. It just, it, I can find the gene, I'm sure. If they can find the gay gene, they can sure, for sure find the heterosexual gene. And then all my excuses are right in front of me and no one can make moral judgments. That's the attempt that's being made. It's kind of like... If I say to you, yes, I'm an angry person, but you know what? They've identified the anger gene. And uh, since it's just genetic, you know, you really can't say anything to me about anger management. Uh, it's, in my, it's in my nature. And uh, that's, that's where this all is headed. It's the, it's the wide gate. And you can see not only scientists are developing theories that will suit the wide gate. They start with the wide gate, then they're looking for theories to support it. And it's very poor, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but just as a layman, 
trying to understand how they came up with this model, it looks like it's pretty far-fetched. And then secondly, the moral implications are obviously uh, irrational. That if you can prove that it's nature rather than nurture, then the moral arguments about sexual orientation dissolve before our very eyes. Uh, you get this kind of thing over and over again. Why? People want to do what they want to do. And as Lewis says, it's very liberating to go into the realm of higher thought. Uh, and you, in higher thought, by the way, you'll find a lot of very confused people up there. It's, uh, it's amazing. We'll talk about that later. But it's, it's easy. It's easy. And you'll find plenty of support for it from people in universities, people in high stations who will come up with highfalutin arguments uh, so that you can do what you want to do. Now, uh, let me say, uh, this is not an argument uh, against homosexuality. We could do that some other time when we come across a text that's relevant. It's an argument against all moral license. And you've heard me say before, uh, our biggest problem in Memphis is not the uh, sexual license of our gay community. It's the sexual license of our heterosexual community that has us in so much trouble right now. So I'm not picking on them. I'm just picking on that kind of argumentation. And that's what takes you down the, through the wide gate and down the wide road. It's easy. But notice, secondly, it leads to destruction. He says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. This road is actually going somewhere. And as, as uh, <clears throat> John Stott said in his commentary, the broad road is suicide road. It leads to destruction. Uh, the great... Football coach and commentator John Madden says the problem with Easy Street is he goes through the sewer. And uh, he's, he's right, doggone it. He's one of my favorite theologians. Uh, turn, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9. That would be page 1150, page 1150. And look how Solomon puts it to his sons. Solomon's talking about the sexual life a lot. Because he knows that young men need to talk about it a lot. Old men do too. It's amazing how old men, you know, old, maybe over 50, still driven by their glands. It's amazing how strong glands are. They can uh, trump the brain almost at will. And it still happens with old men who have strong needs. They're trying to get satisfied in some inappropriate way. But here's Solomon talking to his kids who are supposed to be kings royalty. And he says, look, verse 13, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Or as Solomon says elsewhere, little do they suspect that her house is full of dead bones. Yeah, she'll seduce you. She doesn't know anything, but she knows how to seduce us because of glands, and she, she'll bid you come in, and the house is full of dead bones, and her guests are already in hell. And Solomon says, sons, don't be fooled by folly, foolishness, the seductive woman. 
And uh, the seductive sexual seduction of a woman uh, is often used figuratively for foolishness because all foolishness is seductive. It's the wide way that leads to destruction. Now, verse 14 teaches us, however, that few enter the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It is, first of all, hard. It's narrow like a needle's eye. And in order to go on this road, there are curbs, there are boundaries, and it's tight. And sometimes you have to leave your baggage behind. And people don't like going through the narrow road. And it's hard because when you go through the narrow road, here's what people will say about you. He's out of the mainstream. God deliver me from the mainstream. The mainstream happens to be a big flood of sewer, sewage. And so if you're out of the mainstream, good for you. Uh, we can see the wide way is, is the sewer. Let's get into the narrow, narrow stream, not the mainstream. But you can see uh, on, uh, on uh, TV news during political seasons that politicians will constantly uh, demean each other by saying he's out of the mainstream, he's a nut, he's a fruitcake. And th that's what they want to say. If you're not in the mainstream, you're a nut. So it's, it's hard. You take a lot of abuse. And those of you who who are in business, who insist on biblical ethics in the workplace, you know that can be very hard, and you'll be scorned for what you do. Those of you in the academic community, you know that if you really try to build your intellectual framework upon the revelation of God, you'll be scorned for that as narrow-minded. That's true. It's very hard. It can be sometimes very vicious because when you take the narrow road, you eventually will be threatening the empire of the evil one and his minions. And when you threaten their control, they get pretty nasty about it. So the narrow road is hard, he says. But Jesus says it leads to life. Uh, it leads to life. We take this road not just because it's more adventuresome, the road less traveled, so to speak. We take it because it brings us life. It honors Christ, and Christ honors his people. Uh, and we make a choice, and we choose to go this narrow, hard way because it's taking us to Zion. It's taking us to glory. It's taking us to ultimate victory. It's taking us to where real love and joy and peace is, and we know it. So, brothers, what Jesus is saying, you can't just listen intellectually to this presentation that's in the Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, what a lovely discourse. No, you come to the end, you have to see the two roads. And one of them is where most people go. And one of them is where few people go. And you're called upon to take this road less traveled. Few people go on it that leads to life. Otherwise, most of the people are headed for destruction. Now, we know that Jesus is very compassionate. He has a large heart. He invites whom, whosoever will to come to him. You can look at the world statistics at about 30% of the world's population professes faith in Christ. Probably half of them actually know him savingly. So you're probably down to about 15% of the world's population that really know Christ. And then those of us who really know him in the 15%, we go with a broad way sometimes. We make mistakes. So when you take the people who don't know Christ, then the people who do know Christ and are messing up 
I mean, you're down around 10% uh, when you're taking the true road of wisdom. And you got 90% of the people going this way making fun of you. It ain't easy. But he says that's the challenge of righteousness. That's the challenge of wisdom. Now, secondly, let's look at verses 15 through 20. And here he, he's warning us that there are two types of teachers within the church. There are false prophets and true prophets. True wisdom bewares of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. They exist. All you have to do is turn to a chapter in the Bible like Jeremiah 23, and you will see that Jeremiah is dealing with false prophets everywhere. If you look at the history of prophecy in the Old Testament, you'll find that those Prophets of God are constantly challenged in their message by those who are bringing another message. That's the message of the broad way. It's the, the message of, of happiness. It's putting a smiley face on everything, including the judgment and wrath of God. And the true prophet represents God as he is. And if people don't like it, he still stands by what God says. But the false prophet will seek to accommodate the people. And what you find in the church in this very city is church after church that changes historic Christian doctrine to please a lot of people. We were just talking about the, the gay agenda in this community and others. And the press is all over it. If you, if you think that uh, you're not going to take abuse for a biblical position on that topic, you've got another thought coming. There, there, there's a flood of opinion in the national press, local press. Every little evidence that you might be wrong is going to be placarded and you'll be, continue to be held in scorn. But uh, that's the way that leads to life. It's the narrow road. And there will be many false prophets within the church who will accommodate the broad way. And you can see church after church in this city who has accommodated popular opinion that's contrary to the Bible. You say, why did they do that? Because they want to be in the mainstream. They don't want to be a nutcase uh, out on the edge, on the fringe, in the narrow road. It's just simply that. And they allow themselves to be convinced by false prophets. Uh, I don't know if you got your, if you even get Newsweek magazine. I got mine, and of course every Christmas season, Easter season, there's something in there about Jesus. And it's a little painful. It's, a, it's more than a little painful. Every time Newsweek tries to do theology, it's pretty bad. And uh, they always interview the wrong people. And of course this, this week they did the same thing. It just, you know, it's just... Uh, so here they're interviewing a guy named Bart Ehrman. If you're a UNC graduate, he's one of yours, buddy. Uh, he's a professor of religion there. And so Newsweek asked the questions on the front page. Who was Jesus? Did he have a wife uh, in a manger or in a cave? How many wise men were there? Why Bethlehem? And so on. And Bart Ehrman writes the article. And here he, he starts off by talking about a fragment that's been discovered that says that Jesus had a wife. And uh, the uh, Harvard professor, Dr. Karen King, uh, is, is suggesting, of course, that this was a great find, a 4th century parchment that says that he had a wife. Well, Ehrman uh, go, plays with that theme for a while and then eventually admits in this article that, well, you know, it probably was a phony, not an original document, but nonetheless, uh, it suggests that maybe some people thought he had a wife in the 4th century A.D. Well, that's interesting. And then he quotes a lot of things uh, from the pseudo-gospel of James. You know, there are a lot of pseudo-gospels. 
And there's been a lot written about them. Oh, these discovered Gospels. We didn't know we had these Gospels. We thought the only Gospels we had were in the Bible. But those Christians, they didn't tell you the whole truth. There are lots of Gospels, and they just selected the ones they want. That's the popular opinion now. Of course, we, we've known about all these Gospels for centuries. We know about them. They're comic book versions that are like Superman uh, comics. And I don't look to Superman comics to tell me about what a real human being is. I read them as a comic book, and people read those Gospels as comic books, kind of. They were written by Gnostics who had a philosophical framework that was contrary to the Gospels. And so we've known about these for years. But the really intelligent Princeton University and UNC professors and all other kinds of professors want to make the public think these are recent discoveries that the Christians have been hiding from you. Well, we know about them. They're pseudo-gospels. They're written by Gnostics. So Ehrman goes on and tells us all these fantastic things about Jesus and Mary that, of course, aren't true, but are in the gospel of uh, the pseudo-gospel of, of um, uh, James and doesn't make any distinction between that and the scriptures. Then he comes to the scriptures, and he tells us about all the historical problems that are in the scriptures. And then, of course, leading to the conclusion of his article, which says that, you know, after all, these are called Gospels, which is good news. It never says it was real history. Now, how is it good news if it's not true news at all? Uh, and so he tries to divide the so-called good news uh, from history itself. And he says that we all know that these are not true historical realities. Oh, really? I didn't know that we knew all that. Now, he, the, the question, here's just one example that he raises in his article, is the, the question of the genealogies of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, you have a genealogy of Joseph. Fine. And then in Luke chapter 3, you have a different genealogy of Joseph. And Ehrman says, clearly, these are contrary genealogies. Clearly, it's not historical fact. Folks, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 3. This will be page 1954. And of course, we, we realize this is a, a, a problem for us. We need to study this and figure out what it could be. How do you take two different genealogies who say that Joseph had two different fathers coming from two different sons of King David. How can that be explained except somebody made a mistake? That's what Ehrman is saying. Now, on the bottom of page 1954, in your ESV study Bible, you see a long comment there. And in that comment is made this statement. One of the possible ways in which this could be explained is that if Mary didn't have a brother, oftentimes the father of a family that didn't have a son will adopt the husband of, her, of his daughter. Now, I know, you know all sons-in-law are mooseheads, so you don't usually want to adopt them. But in, in Jewish history, it happened on occasion that a man would adopt his daughter's husband. And that would be, of course, for rights of inheritance. Makes sense. If you don't have a son, who's going to receive your, your, your property? So you adopt your son-in-law so that your daughter is the heir with her husband of your property, if you trust your son-in-law. 
When you do that, then you have an adoptive father and you have a second genealogy. Does this make sense to you? It makes sense to me. I don't know that that's the case. It doesn't say that in the Bible. But it doesn't say in the Bible what the situation was. We're just given two different genealogies. Now, I don't know. But here's a plausible explanation. Now turn in your Bible to the earliest pages of this ESV study Bible, page 13. Look at page 13 of your study Bible. And we have some editorial, an editorial oversight committee with people with PhDs from Northwestern and Cambridge and Oxford and so on. And then we have people who are in charge of each book of the Bible with PhDs from all over the world. And look on page 15 and you'll see the PhDs who commented on Luke. Now if I lived in some country that didn't have economic resources and academic resources... I wouldn't be able to say this, but gentlemen, you're of the most blessed people on the face of the earth, not just from material goods, but from academic resources as well. And I've got lots of people here with lots of PhDs, and it seems to me that Dr. Grudem and Dr. Schreiner, from their things I've read in the years past, are very fine scholars, and they're the ones who commented on Luke chapter 3 and gave us that bottom line. So I think I'll stick with Dr. Grudem and Dr. Schreiner, and Dr. Ehrman can continue to be a heretic. And he is. He's a flaming heretic. And he's chosen a way to, ex to explain the Bible that brings discredit to the sacred scriptures. And there's no reason for it. No one's, no one's not admitting that we have problems and things that have an apparent conflict on the surface that, that warrant further investigation. And that's the reason scholars must spend more time than simply take their own... the, the the instincts of their own glands because their mama didn't love them and they're angry or they grew up in a fundamentalist church and they're reacting, which is the case with Dr. Ehrman, uh, and take it out on the scriptures by making fun of every case. Here we have, we have 66 books. You expect that in those 66 books there's nothing that's difficult for us to understand you expect that everything is going to happen by conventional methodology so that we'd never have any questions we have to... Well, of course, 66 books over uh, thousands of years of history. There's a lot of explaining to do. But the point is that when we look at how Jesus deals with the text, and we've already seen that in Matthew chapter 5, he says, not a jot, not a tittle will pass away from the law. I think I'll stick with Jesus. And here's the choice you have to make. Yes, we're blessed with all these scholars who give us plausible explanations for things. But basically, bottom line, here's what you're stuck with. The wide way. Dr. Schreiner is not going to get published in Newsweek. I'll guarantee you that. They don't care about Dr. Schreiner. They like to publish things that are provocative, that make fun of the narrow road. And that's what you've got to put up with all over your life. From beginning to end, you've got to put up with the broad way. Now, here's a question. You're willing to put up with it. Are you willing to love people who are being heretics? Bart Ehrman claims to be a Christian. He's not. He's a false prophet. And you can read his other materials about how he deals with things in the scriptures and it's a consistent story from beginning to end of undermining truths of the scriptures. And men who are going to walk on the narrow road have to be willing to identify heresy when you smell it and when you hear it and when you see it. And look what Jesus says about it here. 
False prophets are deceptive. And Bart Ehrman is very deceptive. Here's a man who is trained under Dr. Bruce Metzger at Princeton Seminary, one of the finest textual critics of the last century, and who knows better than what Bart Ehrman is giving us. Bart Ehrman has taken some of the finest scholarly training he could have received, and he's distorted it. When you look at his treatment of biblical text in a previous book he's done, he just consistently distorts the best work that's available to him in uh, textual criticism and tries to undermine the credibility of all the texts so that he says in his book, we don't know what the original said. That's baloney. And Dr. Mesker showed him over and over again how we know what's in the originals. And he's deceptive, Bart Ehrman is. And that's the way false prophets are. And that's the only way you can be a false prophet. You have to take reality and distort it. So false prophets are consistently taking reality and distorting it, beginning with themselves. And they give you a distorted picture of themselves. They present themselves as teachers of truth and reality. And they're just the opposite. And that's what Jesus is saying. They come to you in sheep's clothing. That is, they call themselves a brother. They call themselves a sister. Uh, Dr. John Shelby Spong was the same way. He was a bishop in the Episcopal Church, just spouting heresies. And why he wasn't disciplined out of the church is because the church itself had lost its willpower a long time ago. And they had nothing to say to Spong. And Spong and Ehrman and people like that continue on and on. And here's the point. Our point is not just to get angry at them, but get angry at evil itself and to be sure that we know that's a destructive road, that's a deceptive road. And uh, you'll find that, uh, once again, if you read Stott, you'll see that he describes these folks. He says, not only do they feign piety, but they often use the language of historic orthodoxy in order to win acceptance from the gullible while meaning by it something quite different, something destructive of the very truth he pretends to hold. He also hides behind the cover of high-sounding titles and impressive academic degrees. And Stott knows he's spent his life dealing with it. And that's, that's common. It's everywhere. And you'll find that they, if they can clothe themselves in Christian garb and pretend to be one of us, that's what they'll do. They love to destroy. They love to deconstruct. They love to take apart. They love to... In, induce skepticism in your mind. They love to take 18-year-olds who've come from Christian churches and tell them why everything they were taught in church was a bunch of traditional hooey and how now they're going to give them the real truth. They're very deceptive, and they do it with much charm and pretended piety. That's what they do. They are in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They are very deceptive, and they are very dangerous and very destructive. And when you see this coming out, you must indeed, first of all, in your own mind, uh, stand against it in your mind. Do the research that you need to do. I just showed you how you can take your ESV study Bible and the resources, the academic resources that have been given to you in the footnotes, in the introductions, and then you can turn to the back and you'll find that there's a description there of how the Bible was put together, the canon. And you can address with some fairly easily accessible resources the foolishness that is put up as wisdom in magazines and newspapers. And you have to. I'll tell you why. It's not for people who go to Amen Bible Study that I'm most concerned. It's about your friends who don't go to Bible studies like Amen and who read this and they're, they're influenced by it. 
How are they going to get the truth? You read this, if you don't know any better, well, I guess that's right. I guess the Bible's not really true. I guess it's just for people who have a religious, a religious need who need to have some myth, myth that they can follow. And so I guess that's what it is. People who believe that end up being destroyed. So I'm not so concerned about you. I'm concerned about your friends who will be destroyed over things like this unless people on the narrow road understand what they believe. People over here don't know. Solomon says, Folly, she doesn't even know what she's talking about. People on the narrow road, they do understand what they're talking about. And we need to be able to articulate it. So with about 30 minutes or 60 minutes, you can do just a little research, look into it yourself when you see something like that, and come up with the answer. So that when you're having, when you're having coffee, uh, you know, at a, at a break sometime in the afternoon or something, you can, people bring it up, you have something to say about it. And I think that's part of our duty as salt and light to not only be wise people, but to share wisdom with other people because it's very destructive. Some of the institutions around that claim to be Christian but really are not. They're, sheep's, they're, they're uh, wolves in sheep clothing. I'm just concerned for people who go in naively and gullibly and they, they buy that rubbish hook, line, and sinker and it leads them to destruction. And you can detect them. Uh, which is the second point we want to make in verses 16 through 18. You can detect them. How do you detect them? You'll recognize them by their fruits. What is their fruit? Number one, there are three things that can, can constitute a person's fruit. Number one, their character and conduct. And most of the time, people are, are undermining the Christian faith because they basically want to conduct their lives the way they want to conduct them, and they do not want to be bound by the ethical code of the Scriptures because they don't love the God of the Scriptures. If you love the God of the Scriptures, then the ethical code of the Scriptures is like a, a love-making manual. Give me that book. But if you don't love the author of the law of God, then you resent the law of God. You don't know Him. You don't trust Him. You don't like Him. So you don't like His law. You don't want to be bound by His rules. And so you're going to undermine His authority so that you can go about your way, make up your own rules as you go. And you'll find it in people's conduct. Secondly, their fruit is found in their teaching. Just check their teaching. Check Bart Ehrman's teaching. He hasn't taken into consideration things that any decent scholar would admit is available to them. Ehrman doesn't even mention it. The idea of adoption of sons-in-law, he doesn't even mention it. Why? He wants to deceive people. And you can see it in his teaching. He's not objective. He doesn't put the options on the table. He doesn't even give it to you to consider for yourself, to choose which way you want to go. No, he's just going to give you one line that's a skeptical line. Here's the basic problem with liberal Christianity. It is in irretrievably skeptical of anything miraculous. That's the fundamental problem with liberal Christianity. It is irretrievably skeptical of anything miraculous. Now, think about the core doctrines of the Christian faith. How many of them involve miracle? Well, of the core things, like God is creator, there's a miracle. God sustains creation, there's a miracle. God sent his son of a virgin, there's a miracle. He lived a perfect life, there's a miracle. He died on the cross to save other people from their sins who weren't even born yet. There's a miracle. People are saved by being born again. There's a miracle. 
Jesus is coming back to rescue us, to save us. There's a miracle. And we're going to live an eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. There's a miracle. Now, tell me, how much of the Christian faith can you really embrace? How much of a Christian can you be if you don't believe in the miraculous? Folks, you can't be one. The problem with liberal Christianity is it's not Christianity. And let me just say it really clearly. And there are churches here who pride themselves on being liberal Christians. That's a contradiction in terms. I don't mean political liberal. I'm all for political liberals. We can have political liberals and political conservatives and they need to be in the same churches worshiping God together, marrying each other's children, and so on. Having different political views is healthy for the church. I'm not talking about political liberalism. I'm talking about theological liberalism. It's from the pit of hell. It has nothing to do with Christianity except to oppose it. And that's what false prophets do. They're on another track that's contrary to where we're going. That's what Jesus is saying. And I'm being... I'm trying to be as strong with us this morning as I believe Jesus was with his disciples so that we get a real feel for what he was saying. He was saying, you've got to watch out. This is not for sissies. This is not child's play. These, they're landmines. This is warfare. And you're going to be at it all your life because false prophets enjoy what they do. They enjoy the wickedness of undermining the truth. So first of all, you'll know them by their character and conduct. Secondly, you'll know them by their teaching. And thirdly, you'll know them by their effect upon other people. When J. Gresham Machen, the very fine uh, evangelical, he was a Presbyterian professor at Princeton. He left Princeton because of incipient liberalism into Princeton Seminary. And he started with three or four other professors, Westminster Theological Seminary, back in the 1920s. And it was just incipient at that point. It was just the beginning. The, the nose of the camel was just into the tent. The camel was not in the tent like he is now at Princeton Seminary. But the nose was in, and Machen said, that's it, we're going to start a seminary where the nose of the camel is not allowed in the tent. He didn't use those words, those are my words. But Machen, when he studied in Germany for his Ph.D., he said he was almost tripped up because of the apparent piety of liberal professors. And he was very drawn to them as individuals. So if there is a form of piety which could confuse us at times, here's what won't confuse you. Look at their theological and spiritual descendants you won't be confused. When you see what kind of fruit a man's teaching bears in the lives of other people, then you'll see what's happening. And I can promise you that people that are following Dr. Ehrman are going to destroy families, destroy communities, and destroy their own lives because they have no ethical underpinning to their lives. Why would they not have an ethical underpinning? Because they have no theological underpinning. Why would they have no theological underpinning? Because they have no biblical underpinning. They don't trust the Bible as the Word of God. And therefore, it's every man for himself. You just watch it, and you'll know them by their fruit. Look at what fruit is being born through their teaching. Do you see Dr. Ehrman's students planting vibrant churches where people are being brought to faith in Jesus Christ? No, and you never will. You'll see them like parasites continuing to suck the blood out of the real Christian church and hive people off so that they too can be skeptics and make fun of what their parents believed. That's what the fruit of that sort of teaching always does. So heads up, folks. Just you can, de you can detect it. That's what Jesus is saying. You will recognize it. 
If you're looking for the truth, and if you love God, you will recognize it. If you're the real thing, you will recognize the counterfeit. If you're not the real thing, you won't be able to recognize it. But you, disciples, will recognize and be able to detect them. That's what he's saying about false prophets. And then in the in C, of course, we learn God will destroy them. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So in the last day, believe me, you'll be able to see the difference. Some will live and some will die. And this is serious business. This business of interpreting the Bible and deciding what God has said true ethics is and living your life in conformity with a narrow way. It's very serious business. And we need to save people from the broad mainstream. If they're going the mainstream, they're going to get destroyed. And that's the reason for evangelism and the reason for discipleship. We love people. We do not want them to be, to be destroyed. I don't want Bart Ehrman to be destroyed. I don't want John Shelby Spong to be destroyed. But here's a warning. If you keep going on that path, you're going to be destroyed. And you're going to take some other people with you to our everlasting sorrow. Now, look in verses 21 through 23. And you'll see that true wisdom walks the talk. Not everyone who says to me, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, we're going to move quickly here in nine minutes. First of all, notice this. Hypocrisy can impress us. Hypocrisy can impress us. People who have strong gifts, who are very intelligent, who've done some significant research, even though it's biased, and even though they don't share all the research they know is available, they're still very impressive people. And in that sense, in civic society, they deserve our respect. But in spiritual terms, they don't deserve our respect, uh, or at least their behavior doesn't. Because we can be impressed, number one, by orthodox profession. Notice that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, they'll call him Lord. They'll call him by his right name. Paul says no one can call him Lord except by the Spirit. You say, well, wouldn't they have to have the Spirit? Well, you have to take those in context. Anyone who calls him truthfully Lord can only do that by the Holy Spirit. You cannot submit to the Lordship of Christ except by the Holy Spirit. But anyone can get the words out of their mouths. Balaam's ass can do that. And here, some Balaam's asses do it. They have a profession. They will say that they trust Jesus as Lord. They believe Jesus is a myth, but they trust him as Lord. Go figure that. So they can have an orthodox profession. They can sing the same hymns you sing. They can profess the Nicene Creed, just like we sang it a moment ago in O Come All You Faithful. They can say all kinds of things, but they're hypocrites. Secondly, they can have zeal, religious zeal. They can not only say Lord, but Lord, Lord. With zeal, call it out twice. And yet they uh, are not of God's people. They can, they can be Christian preachers. Get this. They say to him, did we not prophesy? Did we not preach in your name? So you can have people who are very smooth-tongued communicators who are in churches and wear clerical garbs and who are known as mighty preachers and they never knew the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. This is how, how careful that we need to be in our assessments. They can offer spiritual deliverance, cast out demons, 
Because they said to Jesus in the last day, and didn't we cast out demons in your name? Judas apparently cast out demons. He was with the 70 who went two by two and came back rejoicing that the demons were subject to them. Judas cast out demons. And then you have miraculous ministry and do many mighty works in your name. You know, Saul, they said of Saul, can even Saul prophesy? Yeah, the Spirit came upon Saul. It didn't convert him, but he was able to do spiritual things, many mighty works, King Saul. But he was a reject because he wasn't a believer. And Jesus is saying hypocrisy can impress us, but secondly, notice, brothers, it won't impress God. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we have to understand that in our spiritual discernments, we're living in a world where wolves dress up as sheep and where real fine-sounding words can be deceptively wicked. We have to be very careful and, and to take in the Scriptures and, and breathe the Scriptures so that hypocrisy and, and uh, counterfeit lives become evident to us. And then in... Uh, chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, Jesus says, true wisdom builds on the rock. True wisdom builds on the rock. Brothers, you've got to build your life on the rock. First of all, wisdom hears and does. This is what wisdom does. It hears and it obeys. It doesn't just go in one ear and out the other ear, hanging around a little while, a little biblical knowledge. But whatever biblical knowledge you have, if it goes in your ear, and you don't put it into practice, it will go out the other ear. You can't hang on to that stuff. Many scholars hang on to many things, but they don't hang on to Jesus, and they don't hang on to the real word unless they put it into practice. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. So if we just hear the word, if we just go to a Bible study, but we don't put the things into practice, you're building your house on sand. So lots of people who go to church are building their houses on sand because their foundation is not based on what they're hearing. Their foundation is based on what they do with what they hear. That's what Jesus is saying. Wisdom puts into practice what it hears. And then what you put into practice is actually what you keep. You lose everything you don't put into practice. I'm telling you, you can go through your Bible and you know, you've got your favorite verses you underline and the ones you're intent on putting into practice. The ones you don't put into practice, you even forget they're there. There are plenty of evangelicals through the, the past century who never underlined verses on social justice. And then a little later on, they're even surprised those verses are in the Bible. They read them, but they didn't retain them because they didn't put them into practice. The only way you really know the Bible is when you put it into practice and then you retain the knowledge of God. So when you hear a word from God, gentlemen, put it into practice. And that's the way you'll, you'll build your house on the rock. Wisdom, be endures storms. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But on the other hand, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, the foolish house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Gentlemen, 
when you take that narrow road and you believe what the Bible says to you and you're consistently putting into practice, you're continually repenting, continually dealing with your dysfunctions that go way back to your childhood, continually repenting and humbly asking the Lord to continue to change your life. You're walking that narrow way, which is very hard, and few people are on it. And sometimes it's lonely, but you're on that narrow way. I'm telling you what now, when the flood comes, you're going to stand. When there's an earthquake, you're going to keep walking. God is going to sustain you and take care of you. I've told you about one of the classic moments of my life when I saw this with Ms. Richardson. This is almost 30 years ago. I was at her bedside, and she was on her deathbed. And I said to Ms. Richardson, Ms. Richardson, what, do you, what are you thinking these days? How, how, how's your relationship with Christ? And she just spoke so glowingly of him. And, and I, I asked her, I said, Ms. Richardson, what's your favorite hymn? And she gave me not only her favorite hymn, but her favorite stanza. When through the deep water she said, I cause you to go. The rivers of sorrow will not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy trouble to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Now, there was a woman who was being flooded with a disease, and her life was built on the rock. She wasn't budging because for years she had taken what she had heard and she had put it into practice. And you can see it at the deathbed. You can also see it when a man faces tough ethical choices and he's being scorned and he stands on the rock of God's word because he knows it's true. And he'd rather be, uh, he would rather be a majority of one person with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the world desires to go to hell, he'll call to them not to. He'll plead with them not to, but he ain't going to follow them. And he'll stand on the rock. And I tell you, you will stand there until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in all of His glory. Because He not only came once, and He did come. He said He was going to come, and He came. Well, guess what? He said He's going to come again. I think I better believe He's going to come again. He certainly came the first time after He said He was going to come. And He's going to come the second time. And He's going to take up your cause. And He's going to vindicate, vindicate that narrow road that you took. And furthermore, he's going to vindicate you who made the wise decision to walk that narrow road. That's what's going to happen. And that's the reason that lastly, true wisdom comes from above. This is given to us by God himself. Wisdom like this doesn't come up from universities. It doesn't come up from men thinking their best thoughts. No, this wisdom comes down out of heaven. It's the wisdom that saves men from their sins. It's wisdom that delivers men from a broken world. It's wisdom that delivers them from folly and leads them into the fruitfulness of walking with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's gift to us. And that's the reason people were astonished at his teaching. And I want to tell you something. I'm astonished at his teaching. He teaches us with authority, yes. He also teaches us things that lead us to eternal life and get us out of this folly and the mess that we've created for ourselves. He's taking us somewhere that is absolutely glorious. Glory be to his name. And Merry Christmas, gentlemen, and goodwill to, to you and your family. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of wisdom that comes from above. Help us to embrace it, to believe it, to walk it out, and to know that one day we'll see the eternal results of the wisdom of Almighty God. We pray for our friends and neighbors who spout folly and who lead others to folly. And we pray that you'll grant repentance to them all. Lord, please deliver our family members, our loved ones, our neighbors, our 
fellow citizens in this community and in this nation and in the world from the folly of, uh, of false doctrine that leads to destruction and enable us to be your messengers of truth and love. And we make our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.